So if you go to South Korea and you go to Seoul, on the, on the western side of Seoul, there's this tiny place called Yanghwajin. That's like a tiny neighborhood. And there you have a tiny cemetery. Uh, and it's dedicated to the four missionaries who came uh, in the early days of, of Korea, mainly the, the late 1800s or the early 1900s. This is when Korea was still a closed country that it had hardly any Western influence. So uh, to see a Westerner was a big deal. And also they were very protective of their culture, of their people. So that's kind of the context in which all these people came. I remember I was in youth group, and my youth group pastor told me, uh, along with other friends, that we are going to go on a field trip. And I had no idea we were going to go to a, a cemetery. Right? I thought I was going to go on a picnic, maybe grab some good food and, and hang out with my friends. But instead, we literally went to a gravesite. So I was really disappointed. It took us about an hour to get there, public transfer, transportation. It wasn't the easiest route to get there. And as soon as I got there, it's not like everything was fancy and shiny. It was literally this this small kind of graveyard that we, we seen, and, and uh, nothing was impressive about it. And so I was really, really disappointed. But then I started walking around the, the cemetery, and I noticed some things uh, in, in, in the cemetery. What, what I saw was, first of all, in a lot of the graves, they have these stones, and you can calculate how, how old the missionaries were. And a lot of the missionaries were very young, uh, when they came to serve in Korea. The second thing that I noticed was there's this small section, and compared to the other gravestones, the gravestones of this section is smaller because they're all for kids, for children. And on the, those graves, it literally have not just the year, not just the month, but dates. And if you calculate it, some have lived for maybe a couple months, some have lived for maybe a couple days. And it's, it's just a shocking sight because not only do you recognize that there's a lot of missionaries who came in a very difficult time, but they really paid the price. They had babies in Korea, and because, uh, you know, at that time, uh, hospitals weren't there and, and the medicine wasn't great, um, they, there was a lot of sacrifice that went into their missionary work. And the last thing that really shocked me was the last words that were written on these graves. I mean, there's so many nice ones, but um, just I want to read to you a couple. So Ruby Kendrick, she was a, a lady from Texas. She was born in Texas. At the age of 25, she was called to be a missionary in Korea. Everyone thought she was crazy, but she still went there. Nine months she lived, and then she died in Korea. And then her final words was this, If I had a thousand lives to give, I'll give it all to Korea. You have... Josephine Campbell, who was a widow at 27, and she um, later on went to uh, become a missionary at the age of 44. She did a lot of work, especially with women at that time who were underserved, women who didn't receive education. She provided education, so she made a big sacrifice on her tomb. It says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Henry Appenzeller, he has this on his grave. I have come to serve, not to be served. And then Mary Widdowson, she writes, she was one of the people with her husband who served a lot of the orphans in Korea, and she writes on her grave. And this is what she said towards the end of her life. I don't want to go back home. I can go to heaven in Korea. And so reading these words, you know, there's a lot of thoughts that are going through my mind. Even as a teenager, it was shocking. Number one, you know, I thought just, you know, Korea was well advanced in education and a lot of the big stuff, especially in Seoul. 
But you notice that there was a price that was paid. That a lot of these missionaries came, they built uh, hospitals, they built schools, and, and they helped people get educated, and they helped build churches. And now, every corner that you go to, like, there's literally a church. Uh, Korea is number two when it comes to sending missionaries to other nations. Uh, number one is, is America. So you see this drastic change that took place over a span of 100 years. And the reason why that took place is because there are people who are willing to sacrifice their life to sacrifice everything about their life to serve God and to serve people. And the next thing that I realized was this. These people probably didn't realize what they were doing at that time. Like, you spend eight months in this foreign land and you die. And what good is that, right? You have your children die in a foreign land, and they probably didn't know what they were doing at that moment, the magnitude of their service. But you see the fruit of that down in, and in generations, you see how the, that spiritual lineage, it, it was passed down to the Korean people. So you kind of see God working in the midst of all that sacrifice, in the midst of all the price that was paid. And the last thing that, you, that, that, that was really going through my mind is that, man, my, my life, I have to live for what counts, right? Because, you know, we can accumulate a lot of wealth, we can do a lot of things, but at the end of the day, if we are just living according to this world's standards, we don't leave much for our future generations. Maybe a house, maybe some, some money left over, but what these missionaries left was this whole spiritual inheritage where, they could, they, where the future generations were able to take that and live faithfully and follow the Lord. So we see that through this, this, this kind of cemetery that you kind of have a picture of God's faithfulness and the faithfulness of God's people, and that in itself is a challenge to, to you and me. In today's passage, at the end of the book of Joshua, the author takes us through another cemetery. We see that there are three graves, three pictures of death. And this is kind of an odd way to end the book because we know so far the book has been about life. It's not just about the land. Yeah, it, the land was a big deal. Claiming the land was a big deal. But it's really about reclaiming the life that God intended us to have, right? Because the purpose of the land is so that the people of Israel can come in and they can live a life that is wholly set apart for the Lord. And so Joshua, towards the end of his life, he, he emphasizes this point. Even though you have the land, even though God has been so faithful and you receive so much, remember, there's more work to be done. Remain faithful to the Lord. The reason why he says that is because it's not about the land. Ultimately, it's about the life that you can have in God. And so it's really interesting, after talking so much about life, that the book ends with a picture of death. So we see three graves um, in this passage. The first grave is the grave of Joshua. So if you're taking notes, you can write down the grave of Joshua. Verse 29, it says this, After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And verse 30, and they buried him in his own inheritance. So here we see that the title that is given to Joshua is the servant of the Lord. And you might think, okay, that's kind of a common title. But if you read the Old Testament, there's only three people that were called the servant of the Lord. The first person was Moses. He was called the servant of the Lord, not earlier in his life, not when he crossed the Red Sea, but when he... He was about to die. He was called the servant of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 34, the Bible records, then it says, 
Moses, the servant of the Lord. And then you come to the book of Joshua, and every time Moses is mentioned, it's always associated with this idea of being the servant of the Lord. And then you have King David, who wrote a couple psalms, right? And some of those psalms have headings that says, this is a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. And we know that how he was a man after God's own heart. And the last person that you see is Joshua. The servant of the Lord. And this is so interesting because if you kind of go to the beginning of the book of Joshua, in Joshua 1.1, when we are introduced to the person Joshua, it says that Joshua is Moses' assistant. Like he's a servant of Moses. But through this journey of faith, after years of, of, of fighting for the Lord, after years of serving the Lord, at the end of his life, he is finally called the servant of the Lord. And if you go to the book of, of Judges, you begin to see that when Joshua is mentioned, it says Joshua, the servant of the Lord. Now, what do we see in that simple phrase? We see that to be a servant of the Lord, it's not just about how high you can go, but it's how long you serve the Lord. It's about being faithful. You know, sometimes um, we compare our faith to others, and, and, and at the moment we say, oh, my faith is not as strong, or maybe we feel like, yeah, I have a good relationship with God. But at the end of the day, what God is concerned about is not necessarily how, how, how the intensity of your faith at that moment. What God is concerned about is, is the longevity of your faith. It's how faithful you remain to the Lord. Because there are a lot of people in the Bible who are really good at one moment and they left the Lord. And what we see in Joshua, in Moses, in David is these are people who remain faithful to the Lord. Joshua, he served the Lord wholeheartedly. He had incredible devotion he was completely sold on this idea of, of following God. And that was his secret of success. No, Joshua was able to be this, this gigantic, great leader because he was willing to be a servant of the Lord. It wasn't because he was that talented. It wasn't because he had that much experience. It's simply because he was willing to give his life to God. And he let God control everything that, that he did. And so his faithfulness to the Lord was really the key to his success. And we see in the New Testament, Jesus tells his disciples, you know, there's this parable about the talents. Each person is given a different amount of talents. But at the end of the day, when the master returns, the master is going to look at one thing. Have you been faithful with what I have given you? And for those who have been faithful, the master is going to say, good and faithful servant, well done. And for those who did not, you wicked and lazy servant. So we see how being faithful to the Lord is not just a moment in your life, but it's something that you do for a lifetime. And when Joshua did this, he was buried in his own inheritance. It says this, verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So not only did Joshua faithfully serve the Lord, but he led others to faithfulness as well. That is so important because nowadays what people say is as long as you are serving God, that, that's fine. As long as you're, you have a good relationship with God, that's what matters the most. No, the Bible says if you serve the Lord, if you are faithful to the Lord, you lead others to faithfulness. That you encourage others. You empower others to faithfulness. You become an example of faithfulness so that people would want to follow you. And we all have people in our lives that are like that, right? People who encourage us, people who we look up to and we say, man, I mean, I wonder how it's like to live like that. I wonder how that person is able to love in such a way. I wonder how that person is able to really give that, their life in a sacrificial way to God, to others. 
And God has placed all these people in our life to, to be an encouragement to us so that in difficult times, in hard times, we can look to them and say, yeah, I remember, like, just like that person, just like Joshua, we can remain faithful to the Lord. And this is such good news, right? Because, because of Joshua, his leadership, his servanthood, not only him, but the people of Israel who followed him, they remained faithful to the Lord. So we see the first grave, the grave of Joshua. The second grave is this, the grave of Joseph. The grave of Joseph. Look at verse 32. It says this, as the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem. Now, this might be a surprise because the name Joseph, it doesn't appear a whole lot in the book of Joshua. The only time it really appeared other than this was when uh, the Bible was talking about the inheritance, the descendants of, of, of Joseph, how they received a certain portion of the promised land. And so it's only used in, in a tribal sense. But here, for the first time in the book of Joshua, at the very end, we, we see the person of Joseph, and his name is mentioned. And so who is Joseph? Well, he's the reason why the people of Israel were in Egypt in the first place. His father, Jacob, right, had, had, had a lot of sons. And, and out of those sons, Joseph was the one who was favored. But we also know that he had some bad siblings. If you think that your sibling is bad and messed up, you just talk to Joseph because they literally tried to kill Joseph. They set up a trap because they were so jealous. They set up a trap. Uh, and, and so they, they pushed Joseph into a pit. And, and they were so thoughtful because they said, we don't want to clean up after ourselves. We, we can't make money if we just simply kill him. So they said, let's sell him. That, that, that was their mind. And so they end up selling him to, as a slave. He goes to Egypt, and his journey is not an easy journey. We know that he goes to Potiphar's house. He serves as a servant. Although he did great, he got into kind of the scandal. Uh, and, and so he go, ends up going to jail. And in jail, he waits and he waits, and he finally gets an opportunity to interpret the dream of Pharaoh, and he gets a chance to be redeemed and become second in command. And what happens is there's a great famine in the land. And because of Joseph, Egypt is able to prepare for this famine while other nations are, are starving to death. And so the Israelites, they come to Egypt for help. And that's where Joseph, he extends grace to his brothers, his family. And because of the work of Joseph, because of the grace that was extended through Joseph, Israel is able to survive the famine. So in one sense, Joseph was a savior, right? A savior to God's people. But we read at the end of Genesis 50, Joseph, right before he dies, he says something very interesting. He says, you know, to his brothers, I'm about to die. And when I die, I want you to bury my bones, not here, but back in the promised land. Why? Because I know that this is not our home. Now, why does he do that? I mean, he's about to die. He's going to go back to the Lord. Why does he say that? It's because he remembers God's promise. God promised Abraham in Genesis 15 when he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Although for a certain period of time, they're going to serve these other nations. They're going to be slaves. After 400 years, they're going to come back and inherit this promised land. And so Joseph, knowing the promises of the Lord, knowing that, that although his story ends here, God's story is going to continue He's going to encourage his brothers and say, no, remember that this is not our home. Although we are living a good life, although people are loving us here, we're in a foreign land and everything is great because people love me, because appreciate what I, they, I've done for them, and they, they are doing well. Joseph says, remember, this is not your home. You're going back. 
And so he says, to remember this, remember to take my bones when you go back to the promised land. And sure enough, in Exodus 13, we read that Moses, right before he leaves Egypt, he takes the bones of Joseph, he carries them. And finally, now that they're in the promised land, now that the story is over, Joseph, his bones are buried in Shechem where his story began. That was where Jacob, Joseph's father, purchased the land, and that's where his family lived. And so finally, they come to this full circle. They return to the promised land. What a wonderful story of God's faithfulness, how he leads his people. Long after Joseph died, he was still faithful to the promises that he made to Joseph and the forefathers. So the second tomb is the tomb of Joseph. The third tomb, the third grave that we see is the grave of Eleazar. Now, this is kind of a hard one because we don't have a whole lot of information about Eleazar, but we read in verse 33 that Eleazar was the son of Aaron, who was the high priest, and Eleazar himself was the high priest as well. After Aaron died, uh, he was the one who took over, just like Moses died and then Joshua took over. So what is the high priest? A high priest was the spiritual leader of the people of God. Although Joshua was technically kind of the main leader, the high priest was this mediator between God and man. He was kind of this bridge between a holy God and sinful people. Anytime the people of God, they did something wrong, wicked, sinful, it was the high priest that made a plead for, so, that, so that these people can be forgiven, so that these can, people could, could be freed from, from their sins. And how they did that was they made sacrifices, especially once a year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies just once a year, and he would pour uh, the, the blood of a goat on the mercy seat. And that was a symbol that God was willing to forgive his people based on a sacrifice. So just remember that Eleazar, he was a spiritual leader. He was a very influential person. He was a mediator between God and the people of God. So three graves. You have arguably the greatest leader in the Old Testament, Joshua. You have a wonderful savior in Joseph. And then you have this incredible mediator in Eleazar. Incredible story, a very good story, but they have one thing in common. They're dead. They're dead. It says in verse 29, after these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. Verse 30, and they buried him. Verse 32, the bones of Joseph, they were buried in Shechem. Verse 33, Eleazar, the son of Aaron died, and they buried him in Gibeah. So while these leaders were alive, Israel was faithful to the Lord. Everything was going great. Life was good. Well, people were serving the Lord. And we kind of read that really the generation of Joshua, they faithfully remained um, in the promised land. They served the Lord through and through. But we also read in the, in, in the, in the next book, Judges chapter 2, verse 10. You can flip over there really quick. Judges 2, verse 10, it says this. And, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation, a generation after Joshua, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And it talks about Israel's unfaithfulness. Now that they don't remember all that God has done for Joshua, it says at the very end in, in verse 15, 
It says, and as the Lord has sworn to them, they were in terrible distress because they, they left the faith, because they walked away from the Lord, because made, they made a choice not to serve the Lord, but to serve other foreign gods and false gods. The Bible says their life ended up being stressful, terrible distress. And so we see, although life was good under the leadership of Joshua, that we see kind of this sad almost story that follows up this incredible story where the people of God, they're unable to sustain their faithfulness to the Lord because they lack a leader. But at the same time, there's good news in this because although Joshua is dead, Joseph is dead, and Elias are dead, they're all dead. But the good news is that we have a leader that is greater than Joshua. The good news is that we have a savior that is greater than Joseph. The good news is that we have a mediator that is far better than Eleazar. And that person is Jesus Christ. All these leaders just happen to point to one leader, the ultimate leader, and his name is Jesus Christ. If you think I'm making an overstatement, just, just think about what the Bible says about Jesus. Jesus was strong and courageous. He faithfully carried out every word and every work of God that he was the obedient one. His name itself, right, comes from the Old Testament name Joshua. Like, it's the same name. And we see in Philippians 2, 7, it says that Jesus, although he is the son of God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate servant of the Lord. Right? He's the one who carried out the will of God to fulfill God's purposes and plans. He is the ultimate servant of the Lord. He's the one who leads us to victory. He's the one who destroys our enemies. He's the one who leads us to eternal life. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. The reason why God tells you, Jesus tells you to follow him is not so that he can just use your, your life so for, for his own sake, but he says, follow me so that I can give you life, life in abundance that you're going to live life in a meaningful way with purpose. And so he is the greater leader that leads us not just to the promised land, which is heaven, but to eternal life, which is the life that God always meant us to have. The second thing that we see is, is Jesus, he is the better savior, far better than Joseph, because Joseph was able to deliver God's people from a famine. Colossians 1.13 says, Jesus, he delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Like, that's way different. Like, from a famine and literally delivering us from death, from darkness. Jesus is the better savior. And lastly, we see that Jesus is the better mediator because we see in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So all these high priests are really pointing to the ultimate high priest. According to Hebrews, it says that 2.17, Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. It is through him that we have access to the presence and the favor of God. We no longer have to hide. We no longer have to be scared. We no longer have to be distant from God because Jesus has made a way for us. He became the ultimate sacrifice, and as the ultimate high priest, he tore the veil, and now we are able to go into the presence of God with confidence by his blood. 
So Jesus, he is the greater Joshua, he is the greater Joseph, and he is the greater Eleazar. And it's not that Jesus is just better, but he's forever. You know, you know, the story of Joshua ends with him being in the grave. The story of Joseph ends in the, in the book of uh, Genesis, be, him being in the grave. The story of Eliezer ends with him being in the grave. All their bones are in the grave. And how does the story of Jesus end? Well, he died. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again, defeating death. And he is alive forevermore. That he is the king, and king, king of kings and lord of lords, and he's the one who's going to return. That he is not dead, he is alive. If the faithfulness of God's people depended on God's leader, then we are in good shape. And isn't that good news? Because the faithfulness of God's people always depends on God's leader. The reason why Israel was unable to remain faithful to the Lord was because they didn't have a true leader. But we see that our leader is not only better and greater, but he is forever, that he does not die. He does not go away. In fact, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The reason why I send you out to make disciples of all nations, to baptize people in my name, to teach them all that I've commanded you is because all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me and I am with you to the end of the ages. Our Joshua is so, so much better. So at the end of this book, what we need to see is not just, oh man, this was a good story about Joshua. What we need to see is that this is our Savior, our leader, Jesus Christ. And it is out of this context that Joshua is really making a plea to us. Choose the Lord. Serve him. Don't serve other gods. You know, uh, last Sunday, Pastor Danny talked about that famous verse in, in Joshua 24 where Joshua literally says, hey, choose today who you, you're going to serve. Like either it's God, and if you think it's wicked to serve God, then serve foreign gods, the gods of your fathers. For me and my house, I will serve the Lord. He, he's, he's saying, hey, choose who you will serve. Either you serve foreign gods and false gods, or you serve the one and true God. There is no third option, by the way. It's not like there's two political parties, and if you don't like two political parties, you can be undecided. Like, I mean, that works in the political wor world. For, for God, that, that's not the case. God says there are only two ways to live. Jesus says there is a wide and easy path, and he also says there is a narrow and hard path. There's only two options. Many people follow the wide and, and, and easy way. But God says the way of life is the narrow and hard way. Choose life. He's making a plea. And you might think, well, that sounds hard. That sounds difficult. I don't know what your motivation is when it comes to serving the Lord. Maybe you haven't made that decision yet because there's something within you that says, well, that's a scary thought. And it, it is a scary thought. If you think about it, what, what God is asking you to do is this. He's not just asking you to add him on your friend list. That he's not just saying, add a portion of me into your life. No, he's saying that give me all of your life. That give me everything, about, everything that you have. Every bit of your life, I want to have that. That's what he's saying. Make me the center of your life. Why does he say that? That's kind of a scary thought. And I think a lot of people are driven by fear. Because they look at the wrath of God 
and they, they see, wow, it's, it's scary to go to hell, so I'd rather go to heaven, right? Uh, but at the same time, you know, we, we know that in the beginning, you can be driven by fear, but if you're always driven by fear, that's a miserable life. That Christian walk does not have any joy. It's, it's always scary, right? You're always worried about the next thing that God is going to do, like how he's going to hit you with lightning, like, and you're always kind of like living in fear. The other thing that a lot of people do is you say, well, because God did so much for me, I got to pay that off. I, I got to work hard. No, it's, it's like, like your parents sometimes say this. I raised you. I fed you. I paid for your tuition. I changed your diapers. I gave you three meals a day. Now you got to listen. Right? It's like <laughs> it's, it, their, their basis of obedience is that I did all this for you. So although you disagree with what I'm about to say, you follow me. And a lot of people feel like that's what God is doing because he's doing so much for us. He gives us so much. It's like although you don't like it, just, just do it. Do it. It's, it's driven by guilt. It's, it's driven, driven, driven by this, this obligation. And, and what the Bible tells us, is that that's not really the case. It's not necessarily fear. It's not necessarily guilt that's driving our faith. If that happens, that means that our Christian walk is a joyless walk. But just think about what Joshua says in his final remarks, going back to chapter 23. The reason why he's able to declare, hey, make a choice in chapter 24 is because he declared a truth in chapter 23. And what is that truth? The truth is very simple, that God is good, he is faithful, and you can trust him. God is good, he is faithful, and you can trust him. God doesn't need our service. It's not like we make him complete. God is not lonely. He is always three in one, meaning he always has company. And he's perfect in his way. It's not that we add anything to God. Really, out of sheer grace, God invites us to be part of his good plan. And why should we ever choose God, it's simply because he is good, that he, he has your best interests. He is faithful. He does not change, unlike people who change in this world. And so you can trust him. I think the reason why we have this kind of this negative reaction towards leadership or negative reaction towards obedience is because we met some horrible leaders who are not good and who are not faithful, who change their word all the time, and who seek for their, their self-interest. God is different. And if anything, through the book of Joshua, what God is showing us and what Joshua is telling us is this, that God is good, he is faithful, and that is the reason why you should trust him. And Joshua is saying, you compared God and all the false gods that your forefathers believed and all the false gods that the people around you are believing. What's your option? What's better? It's not like you have a neutral option where you say, well, I'm somewhere in the middle and I'm, I'm undecided. No, that's, that's not the case. And for those who have yet to commit your life to Jesus, can I just ask you a simple question? If you've been living according to your own will, according to your own ways, according to your own standards, according to your own good, how's life right now? If you are completely satisfied happy with your life right now, then there is actually nothing that, that, that this word can offer to you. But if there is something that is missing, there is something that's empty, 
if you are constantly pointing fingers at your circumstance, at people around you, and you're saying they're the problem, my situation is the problem, the world is a problem, doesn't that tell you that something is wrong about your life? And what God is saying is this, it's not that just Jesus is better, the life that he has to offer you is so much better. Like, what you can do with your life, like, I mean, no offense, but we are pretty good at making bad decisions, right? We can easily destroy us and the people around us. But that life is in the hands of a good God, the hands of a faithful God. He can lead you in the right path. And not only is it going to change your life, it's going to change the lives around you future generations, as you are faithfully walking with the Lord, that people are going to see you and they're going to see the beauty of God and they're going to be able to say, I want to live like that too. So today, make a decision. This is not just a good story, but it demands a decision. Follow him. Trust him today. God is not threatening you. He's inviting you to see his goodness and his mercy and his faithfulness. Let's pray.